This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we test out the acoustics at a Roman relic. We also speak to the creative director, Yaku Strauss, about hotel design and what on earth is a round plan. We tour an early modernist house to find out. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. We start today in the heart of Rome, where the splendid 16th century Villa Medici stands as a monument to the namesake family who built it. But since 1803, it has been the home of the French Academy in Rome. And today, the palace and its opulent halls play host to a variety of French functions. It is an art gallery open to the public, a concert and events venue, a lodge for occasional French diplomats, and, most importantly, a home for the Academy's artists and musicians in residence. The villa has recently had an impressive overhaul, which included interior interventions by Kim Jones, the creative director of fashion label Fendi. Architect and designer India Madhavi was also involved, as was Paris-based audio technology company DVLA. And it's the latter contributor whose influence can be heard loud and clear. Using its award-winning phantom speakers, as well as many bespoke solutions, DVLA has made a sound system fit for the villa's residents, both past and present. For more on the renovation, Monocle's Rome correspondent, David Pleasant, sent us this report. He began by asking the villa director, Sam Strudze, to outline his approach to modernising the villa's acoustics. It was two different approaches. Uh, on one side, uh, our win situation was to, to get um, a sound for Villa Medici. Uh, what is the sound? To discover what the sound is? Exactly. Okay. Where the sound has been always very important through music, uh, through performance, but uh, music is part of the residency program since, uh, or composing to be totally exact, since decades uh, with some very famous uh, people because uh, Debussy, Berlioz... Uh, so they all or, came here and composed? And or Bizet has Bizet. been... Uh, yeah, okay. they, are, they have been resident because we are a residency programme. This idea of working with an expert on what could be the, the sound of the villa was very interesting for us. The question of the acoustic of the space because we were uh, refurnishing all the the rooms from Villa, uh, in some of them where we are doing uh, lectures, uh, performance, concerts, we wanted to improve the acoustic that was actually very bad, 14 meter high, very mineral as a structure. And uh, thanks to their expertise, we were able to develop some uh, very interesting acoustic panels that are just idle behind tapestry. And we'll be looking behind some of those tapestries later. Sam Sturze wanted to bring up-to-date, in fact, state-of-the-art acoustics to one of the most important Renaissance villas in Rome, and in fact all of Italy. Key to this was working with the sound experts at De Vialet on the acoustic identity of the Villa Medici. So what for the villa's director is the true sound of this place. 
A very good question and a very uh, paradoxal answer, I guess. It's um, a place of silence, uh, of concentration, of work. It's giving you really the impression to be in the middle of nowhere. And we start to forget that we are in the center of Rome, uh, in the center of the city. Having been invited by the Villa Medici to experience this fascinating historical place for myself, both during the day and at night, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. With a storm outside and wind and rain lashing the villa, it was most definitely a memorable stay. There were, however, some sounds in the night I wanted to ask the director about. There's some strange noises here at in the night as well, is that... <laughs> have you ever experienced some... I don't know, is it, is it the echoing, is it the architecture, I don't know, that, that kind of creates these... No, it, you're no. speaking of the ghost. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I noticed there was a cat as well, like, wandering around, yeah. a black cat that, that walks... It's your cat. What, what's Alaska? Alaska. It's a cat of my daughter to be... Uh, OK. Yeah, I came across Alaska yesterday meowing, and that was added... One more noise. So thank you. But yeah. the ghost, uh, because you have spent two nights here, uh, you, you for sure you met them, and uh, especially staying in the room where you were staying, which is a very historical uh, room. And the, this place, I, I don't know if we have to call them ghosts, but uh, is full of uh, of presences, mysterious sounds from those presences. And Alaska, the cat aside, I wanted to find out about sound and acoustics at the from an altogether more scientific perspective. I spoke to Antoine Petrov, who is a sound and acoustics engineer who has worked with Divielle for many years. The space is, is about, I don't know, 70 metres uh, square metre, but really high ceiling. And so for acoustics, it's like uh, being in a in kind of church. So it's, it could be difficult. But here we, we install just one phantom because it's just enough to, to fill the space with music and sound, as you will <laughs> hear in some, some minutes. Uh, and because the, the phantom has this really specific round shape, all the, the sounds are coming out of the phantom in every direction in a, in a good way <laughs> and interact uh, normally with the, with the room. Like a, a real singer, for example, it will be the, the same here. Next, we head up the Villa Medici's breathtaking, quite literally, spiral staircase to another beautiful room. This one has recently been restored and colourfully brought into the 21st century with the help of Iranian-French architect and designer India Madavi. The Villa Medici's sponsorship and partnerships officer, Caroline Drevet, showed me around. And this room is called uh, Chambre de Bussy. And did, did Debussy stay in this room? We are not sure about if he stayed exactly in this room, but um, it's called Chambre de Debussy because it was hosting the piano on which Claude Debussy, when he was a fellow at the, at the French Academy, recorded some of his most famous pieces. I am Nathalie Chopra and I'm chief brand officer at De Vialet. We started by playing um, and building around playlists 
Uh, and one uh, is obviously about this room and, and this atmosphere that is uh, super special with the piano of Claude Debussy. Uh, so maybe we can play uh, one track of this playlist. Okay, so when we're ready, maybe we'll play some Debussy. important as well for us and that's something we always discuss at De Vialet is that music and sound needs to be a living thing you know you cannot leave it uh, just in recording with Phantom also what's kind of magic is that you can very much sit down and listen again and not have noises in your ear like you have uh, every part of your day uh, we call that you know intentional listening and, and getting back to that very activity of just sitting there and listening to music I think it's something quite important also just to reconnect to uh, our soul and, and energies and, and senses Finally we went to the large hall in the centre of the villa, the Grand Salon which, as its name suggests, is a grand, cavernous space which comes with its own acoustic challenges. First, it was acoustic uh, treatment because it's a really uh, huge room, especially in the high uh, 14 metres, I think. It's really specific on this room. And so it was difficult now to make uh, concerts or even uh, for cinema here, because of the acoustics, it was like a cathedral. And so the idea was to, to add the acoustic treatment, but without uh, changing the room. <laughs> so it was really difficult. Fortunately, there is some tapestry uh, on this room, and so uh, after working with the architect, I was able to add the, all the acoustic treatment behind the, the tapestry. So these kind of cushioned pads. They're like a rectangular, um, what would it be, about 20 centimetres yes, wide? 18 centimetres. It's an it's acoustic sandwich of different layers to absorb uh, the frequencies and absorb away. It will re keep the experience of this room, but just with a more uh, controlled way. So a singer could sing and you can uh, look at a movie here yeah. understanding what the people are, <laughs> are saying without echoes and, um, and, and other sounds. There are still echoes, but the idea was to keep the atmosphere of the room. Yeah. But we, we, we don't want to disturb the ghosts. <laughs> An acoustic reconfiguration of this magnificent Renaissance palace that has tried to respect its occupants, dead or living, De Vialet and the Villa Medici team have managed to devise a sound system that is both practical and sonically sensational. Let's hope the villa's ghosts, or perhaps we should say its presences, are satisfied. For Monocle, in Rome, I'm David Pleasant. Jakub Strauss is the creative director of Law Group, a hospitality and hotel firm. A founding member of the team, Yaku has overseen the redesign and launch of 100 Shoreditch, as well as the award-winning Dutch hotel Pulitzer Amsterdam. But his path to the role has been a little unconventional, involving time at the Bartlett School of Architecture and Westminster University and a position as senior designer at Tom Dixon's research studio. To find out more about his career trajectory and what it takes to design an inviting hotel, Yaku joined me in the studio.
I never planned to to land where I am now, and I wouldn't change anything for the world. You know, I I grew up in a quite a rural um, part of the world in the Kalahari Desert. Um, I always wanted to do design work, and I kind of created my own entertainment. I kind of had to cherish my and, and nurture my own creativity and make things for what I could find around me. So I really wanted to make things. And I had a love for architecture, building homes. I loved how your environment kind of affect you. So from a young age, that's what I wanted to do. Moved to London, then I moved to New Zealand, and then I started my studies there in architecture. And then I moved back to London, and I did my subsequent two degrees in architecture here at the Bartlett. Then I decided to not work for an architect. I wanted to work for someone who had a slightly broader appeal for me. So I applied to work for Tom Dixon, and the rest is history. I learned a lot from him, and then we pitched for this hotel project. Neither Tom nor I had done a hotel before, but we won the pitch and put everything into it, emotionally, time-wise. And we learned so much and we did sea containers on the South Bank in London. And then the people who owned that offered me this role that I have to this day. A few years later, after doing another hotel in Amsterdam, we thought we can actually do more of this and we had bigger ambitions. And that's when I founded Law Group within the company. We're a slow-growing company, but with great ambitions, but we have six hotels now on our portfolio. I'm really happy with where I am doing hospitality. It's the most wonderful thing. I want to come back to, to Law Group and, and, and your role there and I guess the work you're doing. You said six hotels but something that jumped out at me is, is you mentioned that you studied architecture but you wanted to do something more. What did, I guess, working for Tom Dixon across you know furniture and interiors offer you that maybe architecture didn't? Architecture is, is quite broad and it takes a lot of time to become an architect and you can sort of chisel out your own, own route as well. But I was much more interested in how design affected people. Architecture does that, but for me, it didn't do it enough. Sometimes it's more about just the purity of buildings. I'm interested in the experiences that people have and what you can create for people with doing architecture, furniture, accessories, anything that people can touch. Tom really taught me the importance of storytelling, which I know a lot of people talk about right now, but that is the most important thing for any project, is how do you tell the story and almost why are you telling it? Because that gives something longevity and people then really connect. For me, that's the, the broader appeal, especially with hospitality where we have to touch so many things. That's what I learned at Tom Dixon was just that, that you have to think about people. And I've learned that design is about people, it's not about things. So h- how is that reflected in your, your work for, for Law Group? Tell us a little bit about that. How do you put people first, I guess, in, in these hotel and hospitality projects? You have to think about everything. You have to put yourself in so many different shoes because you're not designing for one person. That's if you do residential, you have to understand that one person. But with hotels, even though we don't want to be everything for everyone, you have to understand a slightly broader appeal. And we want to be quite democratic with our hotel as well. Everyone's welcome. But you have to realize that everyone will probably respond to something differently. So you really have to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about these touch points. But it's really also about just creating moments that delight people and also make someone feel very comfortable and welcome. And you do that through many different things, but you have to experiment a little bit to get it right. Can you give us some examples of of that experimentation that you've done? It's trying to find these touch points and think about the journey someone would go through going into a hotel, whether it's a guest or a visitor or even someone who works there. You have to plant these touch points. You don't want to have too many heroes in one place, otherwise it gets overwhelming. But you also never want to create a museum. You want to make all the finishes and all the materials feel quite welcoming. You should feel free to touch things. It's not like a gallery, so you should be able to touch everything. But there are some classic fundamentals that you also need to bring in. You can't dictate an experience too much. At the end of the day, it's all about comfort. And you have to have these moments of delight. You can't always predict what they are, but we kind of leave an open narrative as well so people can create their own memories and their own stories in their own way. 
Can you walk us through a project like maybe the Pulitzer in, in Amsterdam or is there, is there another one that is easier to talk us through maybe the storytelling process and those moments you're trying to create? Pulitzer in Amsterdam, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do a hotel like that. It's 25 interconnected canal houses and many of them are 400 years old. 225 rooms, not a single room is exactly the same. So it was a real labour of love. At the time, no one would really touch it because it didn't make sense on paper. But for us, it really made sense in our hearts. Sounds a little bit cheesy saying that, but it really made sense. We really were fascinated by the history of it. So you had 400 years of history to work with in a city that's wonderful and so rich with all of its culture. And it's kind of old and new at the same time. The further you dig, the more information you find, you decide what is important. And sometimes you don't find things. In the Pulitzer, for example, there were some actual things. The hotel was created in the 60s by Peter Pulitzer, the son of Joseph Pulitzer, who started the Pulitzer Prize. But then we wanted to work on the mysteries of, of all of these buildings, who lived there, when, and that kind of informed the furniture choices that we made. So it's a real eclectic mix of old and new. It's all something that someone may have left behind. So again, that's my open narrative. It, it kind of plays on the history that sometimes some of it's known, some of it isn't, but it all taps into the same story. How do you drag those out? Do, do, do the clientele, do the people staying there know about these stories? Are they picking up on it or is it a subliminal thing that is just inherent in the space? I think it's both. We don't dictate too much. You tell a story that people respond to it's always something positive because you know we, we we're nice people but people kind of create their own little stories and their own narratives as well but you put things out there and people love a bit of history and actually people love a bit of mystery as well so if you say we think this person may have lived here it really resonates it humanizes the building rather than talking about things immediately you're talking about its history and the fact that people always occupied these buildings and they did wonderful things in there. There were some famous artists who lived there. There were some musicians. There were loads of antiques that we inherited. We kind of celebrated that as well. For the Pulitzer in particular, that really resonated very well. And I think when you said it was a subliminal, sometimes it kind of is. You know when something's wrong. You don't always know when something's right if it's done right. But there's a lot of thinking that goes into getting something right. But it should be very natural and organic. You should walk into our hotels and feel like it's always been like that. I liked the word occupy that you use there to describe how you want people to be in the space. Like you want them to use it. You want them to touch it. You don't want them to be scared. Not like my mum's living room. How do you communicate that as well? I mean, this to me, it sounds like all of this is about storytelling and communication. How do you communicate that people can get a bit messy in the space? Design's not always automatic. Design could be a bit patronising to some people. With a hotel... I have to wear all these different hats. I have to understand service, offering, atmosphere, as well as the design. They're all equal, in my opinion. When you get them to be equal, then everything just happens naturally. It's really about how many people make you feel in a, a hotel as well. So again, all of these factors really come into play. It's all of these little touch points, and I think there needs to be a degree of generosity as well. The Pulitzer, for example, because it's the bicycle capital of the world, we have a bicycle repair kit in the desk. It probably is completely pointless to someone visiting from the States, but immediately there's that moment that this is my room for as long as I stay here and I feel like a local. It's a kind of a quirky souvenir, and I think that also represented the hotel and kind of represents Amsterdam. It's quite quirky. Maybe a lot of architecture is you make the building and then you leave it. Whereas when you're working, firstly, you have a continual relationship with these places. So there's probably an element of accountability for yourself. But you're also thinking about the service and how people are actually going to use it. It's not just programming as a, as a list of things, but programming as you're there when the actual activities are taking place. I mean, are there any other elements that you need to consider in your work? I mean, you've talked about the st- almost the staffing down to the actual you know, supply of bicycle kits. It's it's understanding what battles to pick sometimes. You know, again, you have to create an amazing environment, but it's a business at the end of the day as well. So again, it, you have all these different values that come into play. 
that's something that never changes. And a building is, a hotel's never finished. I can't just walk away from it. It's a living thing. And times change, especially in the last few years where travel was disrupted. But also, I think people have a different appreciation of travel and where they stay. And I think our hotels are doing really well because people really want to stay in good value hotels. People appreciate better designed hotels, better operated hotels. And people want to experience something that's much more unique and authentic. So those things constantly change. I constantly have to review what we do in our hotels and what we need to tweak. But thankfully, with all of our hotels, because we put storytelling at the forefront, that story is still very relevant. But we just have to tweak a few things to to adapt to a changing world. Our hotels never finished. All of those things need to be reevaluated all the time. Can I ask what's next for Law Group? What's in the pipeline? Or is, is that too overwhelming? No, it's, uh, in light of the previous question, it's, it's interesting because for, for the first time in 10 years, we, we're able now to really look back at all of our hotels and decide... What's the next metamorphosis for them? Again, the story will stay the same, but things need to be tweaked. So it's the first time we've had a chance to actually do that now that we have six hotels. And we're a very small team, very small hotel groups. It takes a lot of time and effort. But obviously, we have ambitions to do more hotels. We're in a very privileged position where we're not under under no pressure to do the next hotel. We will only do the next hotel if it's the right building in the right city, in the right context. So that also gives me amazing architectural freedom and license because we only do it if it's right. It sounds like there's some good takeaways for people practicing as designers or, or architects anywhere. It's, it's almost like take your time, focus on storytelling. Are there any other fundamental parts of your approach that maybe our, our listeners, whether they're an architect in Australia or a, you know, a furniture designer in New York, could learn from, from your approach? I think it's just to be patient. I think we live in a very fast world and, and interior design, especially in architecture, becoming a bit more like fast fashion. I think we need to fight that a little bit because design is not about things. It's really about thinking. And sometimes you have to give yourself a little bit more room to kind of really work out what's the right thing to do. And um, if we kind of just rush through things, that's when we make mistakes. And I think design really suffers if we do that. Take the scenic route. Sometimes it's okay. Slow down a bit and just decide exactly what the right thing is to do and be confident about it. My thanks to Yaku Strauss there. Finally on today's show, we head to a quiet residential neighbourhood in Prague. Here, in the Czech capital, we visit a landmark building, the Villa Muller. Its plain exterior hides an interior that does away with traditional separated floors. This show's producer, Maylie Evans, paid a visit. On the outskirts of Prague stands the Villa Muller. Freckled with small canary-yellow window frames, towers a bold, blocky facade rendered in stark white. An austere fortress of sorts, designed by the Austrian architect Adolf Loos. For most Prague architecture, the facade is a billboard is informing how rich and great, for example, Baroque or Renaissance building is. That's Maria Shatskowska, head of the Centre for Monuments of Modern Architecture of the Museum of Prague and curator of the Villa Muller. For Adolf Loos, facade would be mute, absolutely mute, because the exterior should not reveal anything of interior. And the principle is clearly expressed in the symmetry and balance of the facade, especially the windows. Completed in 1930, this is the home of Milada and František Muller, a notable co-owner of a large construction company that specialised in reinforced concrete, of which this building uses an ample amount. 
the villa offered its architect Lowe's the opportunity to showcase his ideas of economy and functionality through the use of an unusual spatial arrangement, the round plan. The round plan is the construction of reinforced concrete frame named Hennebrick. And this is composition without the horizontal division of interiors into floors. The architect made round plan using other components of space, for example, mezzanines, balconies, organized spaces of different heights. They communicate freely between each other. You can see the solid walls are often replaced by the load-bearing pillars. So this is round plan. This is four columns, two of them here in the living room and two other columns are rebuilt on the uh, other part of the house. This is the... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the Villa Miller, the living room is connected to the dining room, which is situated on a mezzanine. And Ladies' Boudoir reached by a spiral staircase. On the first floor just now. And this is uh, Boudoir, beautiful space for Mirada. This is very practical. Uh, Ladies' Boudoir has a window opening onto the room, which not only provide light and air to the boudoir, but also allowed the lady of the house to discreetly observe the room below. Here you get the feeling that everything is connected to everything. Ramplan is about official space for family and their circle of friends or collaborators with, with Mr. Miller. But private spaces are upstairs, uh, situated in the level without uh, this complicated staircase connections and so on. And here is library or Frankishek uh, uh, Miller office. One part is the architecture and the second is lifestyle. Here we move into the more private sphere, away from rooms connected through mezzanine submerged levels around a staircase. The architect and interior designer, to some extent, has designed each room with wildly varying styles and tastes to reflect each occupant. For Mr. Miller, a little bit dark oak, mahogany, marble. And the space is much more quiet. Yeah. Mr. Miller was a little bit introverted and very busy man, so he really needed to be uh, a little bit out of this round yeah. plan huge space. He asked uh, Adolf Loss to design much more quiet, much more private mm. space. For Milada, interiors are much more colorful. I'm surprised at the, the variety, like the different personalities of each room. It feels yeah. very open to that. Absolutely. Not forcing one look. Yeah, yeah. The whole Two uh, rooms for little girl. Very, very uh, beautiful and very simple interiors. This is a uh, house designed by measure of, of the family. 
Today, the villa is far from a private home. After the death of Malada Muller, who lived here until 1968, the house was seized by the Communist Party, where it served as a library, storage and meeting space. It was after the Velvet Revolution of 1989 that the home came back to the Muller family, who sold it to the city of Prague, its importance recognised. In May 2000, after many careful repairs and restoration, the Villa Muller was opened to the public. Its new mission is to showcase and share the design and architectural ideals demonstrated within its four walls. 70% of furnish, furniture, equipments and so on are original today. Few pieces uh, we uh, produced as uh, copies. So this is really unique space and we are very proud to, to have the house like, like Villa Miller here in Prague. Ah, there we go, terrace. Uh, you know, this is Prague Castle with Cathedral, beautiful, beautiful panorama of Prague. Architecture enthusiasts and students relish the opportunity to experience the site as it would have been occupied. We feel that uh, the villa is the big inspiration for them, how to arrange the, the space of life today. I'm very happy when I see students who are drawing the architecture, not make photos inside, because the Villa Miller is about details. It is a building that speaks of excellence, of humility, the interior respect, the human scale. For Maria, another reason why the Villa Muller remains an architectural gem is because it remains an example of great collaboration between client and architect. The important is the psychological connection between owner, between client and the architect. It is maybe today very difficult to do because young architects are really very busy and nobody has so much time to communicate with clients. But Adolf Loos, yes, his architecture is uh, based on the communication between him and uh, his client. For Monocle in Prague, I'm Maylie Evans. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylie Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>